analytic philosophers at least always think that their philosophizing has to be consistent with the best empirical theories and natural science. But there's a very strong strain of naturalistic, empirical naturalistic philosophizing among analytic philosophers where you're trying to reduce the philosophical issues to just empirical issues. Good morning, my geeselings, or I guess I don't really know what time it is for you, but it's not actually even morning for me, so I don't know why I started that way. But it is Mother Goose Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, episode 49. This episode is really terrific, and that is, again, entirely because of my guest. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing Stephen Darwell into this podcast universe. And Steve is Andrew Downey Oreck, professor of philosophy at Yale University, and John Dewey, distinguished university professor emeritus at the University of Michigan. So Steve is an absolutely world-renowned moral philosopher, and he's worked on all sorts of areas in the ethical landscape. So he's worked on legal philosophy, history, Kant, deontology. He's quite famous for developing second personal ethics. And parenthetically, we've already recorded a second episode in which we got into more of these topics. But in this episode, we talk pretty much exclusively about modern ethics. And modern ethics isn't, it should be distinguished from contemporary ethics. So modern ethics, as we begin, it is with Hugo Grotius. And we go up through some other very well-known figures like Hobbes, Hume, and Kant. And then we end with some more very well-known figures like Marx and Kierkegaard and Nietzsche. So somewhat embarrassingly, I didn't know too much about Steve before we started talking, namely because I work in philosophy of mathematics and logic, which is quite distant from ethics. But when I told one of my friends at Stanford, Armando Perez Gea, uh, who studied at Yale, <clears throat> that I was interviewing Steve Darwall, he was really thrilled because I guess they studied together and or he studied with Steve. And he told me that sitting in a room with Steve is kind of like letting the the ocean wash over you because he's he knows so much and it's just so soothing. And when you listen to this, I think you'll get a sense for that. He seems to know everything, which is always great as an interviewer. And he had such a tremendous facility moving around the material, uh, making it make sense for me. And I had some mic problems. I'm not sure if it was because I was in the, the corner of my room. As you can tell, I've been moving around trying to optimize the background for your viewing experience. But it might also be that I failed to plug my microphone in. It's embarrassing, but it happens. Uh, so my audio isn't terrific, but Steve's is much better with a few exceptions, I think, in the beginning where he might have accidentally brushed his mic. But thankfully, I don't do too much of the talking too much of the talking. And I really hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Steve.
did your undergraduate at Yale in philosophy, and now you're also uh, an esteemed professor of philosophy at Yale some, some years later. I'm wondering, when you went into undergrad, did you already know that you were going to be a philosopher? Because your career is just uh, very straight, very straightforward. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I had no idea. And I don't know about the esteemed part, by the way. Uh, but anyway, um, no, I was a, I was a child of Sputnik. Uh, so you're so young, you probably don't even know this history. But in 1957, the, the Russians launched a satellite called Sputnik. And this gives, uh, you know, the intellectual establishment, the academic establishment uh, all in the United States, all kinds of anxiety, you know, oh, my God, we can't do what they can do. And they think, oh, well, we have to make this massive investment in math and science education. And it's almost unimaginable to us today, given our political divisions and stasis, but there was huge, just everybody agreed across the aisle that, yes, there had to be massive investment in math and science education. And I was sort of at the leading edge of that. I was in eighth grade. I took algebra. Now, that sounds silly, right? Because everybody takes algebra, maybe in seventh grade. But in those days, it just wasn't done. You didn't teach students algebra until they got to high school. Um, so and, and the idea was to get them to take calculus in their senior year. And I was very lucky. I went to a very an excellent sort of suburban high school in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, we had excellent teachers, uh, many women, of course, because then, you know, most talented women were captured by teaching. Uh, it was pretty much mm -hmm. what they could do. Anyway, so we had great teachers. Uh, I had a wonderful teacher. Uh, trig teacher who was a woman, but the, the person I remember most was a guy named Paul Forrester, who was, he had been a naval engineer. He taught us uh, uh, calculus and he set us problems that were really interesting problems. Anyway, so my cohort in San Antonio, Texas at Alamo Heights High School, uh, the smart kids were all doing math and science. We were tracked into that. Now, there were other things too, you know, Spanish, English, and so on. Very little history, actually. Um, but so I came to Yale expecting to major in math, uh, or perhaps physics. And mm -hmm. I stayed that way through my first year. Uh, and then in my second year, uh, I was taking a course with Shitsuo Kakatani, who proved the Kakatani fixed point theorem, a course in real analysis. And uh -huh. it kind of separated the wheat from the chaff. Uh, there were probably 15 guys. It was all Yale all male at that time. Uh, and there were five guys who sat down at the front of the classroom and the rest of us were sort of spread around the rest of the classroom. And I kind of understood what Kakatani was talking about. And I, I certainly passed the course. I made a somewhat decent grade. But the way I put it is there, there was guys in the front of the classroom and they were talking back to, to Kakatani. They didn't just take in what he was saying, but they had <laughs> questions for him and they had and they said, oh, well, then this must follow. And then so maybe that. And so what about this? And that would never it would never occur to me to ask any of those questions. I just wasn't thinking uh -huh. about math outside of uh, outside of class. So that was the I mean, I took one more class in math. I took a second real analysis course, but I was thinking I got to find a plan B. Um, and physics was really badly taught at Yale at that time. So that wasn't my plan B. 
And I would, luckily I was taking a philosophy course. Uh, it wasn't, it was not a very good philosophy to, class. And I won't even tell you who taught it because it was dreadfully taught. Um, and it's not a sub part of philosophy. It was an ancient philosophy, but, and I had no interest in it given the way it was taught, but somehow, you know, the subject sort of grabs you. It's, uh, it's rigorous thinking. And it was about issues that I cared about. And it turned out that I had been thinking about fundamental questions of moral philosophy for a very long time. My, my father, I didn't know what it was called. I didn't even know what philosophy was until I went to Yale. Uh, but my father was an Episcopalian clergyman, and I come from a long line of Episcopalian and Anglican clerics uh, going back into the 16th century in England. Oh, wow. Yeah. My great-great-great-great-grandfather is good a hymn called, it's, it's Darwall's 148th. I won't sing it for yeah, you. Yeah, Darwall uh, is a great uh, English name. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, it comes from, we come from the Midlands, uh, from around Birmingham, and he, he lived in Walsall. His wife uh, was a, actually a much better poet than he was. He was just, he did, com he composed kind of two memorable tunes and he, he had a, what we call a psaltery, which means uh, uh, tunes to put the Psalms to. Uh, so he did that, but, but Mary Whateley Darwall, his second wife, who is my great, 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 great grandmother, she was a very good poet and she published two volumes of poetry. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so I, I, I moved pretty quickly from uh, mathematics to philosophy. And as you said, I just never looked back. I mean, even mm -hmm. when I graduated from college, I still had no idea what philosophy was. I, I, I knew that I really liked doing it. And I got really lucky in picking University of Pittsburgh as a place to go to because it was very congenial for me. And I found Kurt Beyer there who sort of, and, and Jerry Schneewind who, with whom I cut my teeth on both things that I do, which is on the one hand, um, sort of fundamental moral philosophy. Bayer was a big name then. Uh, Rawls uh, admits some indebtedness to Bayer. Bayer wrote something called The Moral Point of View, which was published in 1957. I finished college in 68 and I was studying with him in like, let's say 69 through 72. And then the other person was JB or Jerry Schneewind who I think is the premier uh, historian of ethics, uh, especially of uh, modern moral philosophy uh, of, uh, well, certainly before Terry Irwin wrote his massive thing. Uh, but he, but anyway, so I, I was very lucky to have these good teachers. And after starting with math and physics though, did it ever occur to you that you might've done philosophy of math or physics? Uh, because you you still could have done that at a high level, even if you weren't a uh, yeah. mathematician or physicist, or it was just always ethics from that. No, point well, I, I, so I, I took almost no ethics at Yale. Uh, the faculty was a very strange faculty. There were some very good younger people. So Stallnicker was there, though I never had a class with him. Boss von Frossen was there. I had a class oh, with yeah. Boss. Huge people. Uh, Rich Thomason was there. I had a class, actually I had a philosophy of math class with, with Rich Thomason and uh, Boss von Frossen. Um, and then I had a philosophy of space and time course with von Frossen. But yeah, that really didn't interest me. Uh, so it, 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 was, it were these other things. I think that's what turned me on at, uh, at Yale was Wittgenstein actually. Um, 
encountering the investigations. I mean, I, I read the Tractatus as well, but it was really the investigations that sort of got me interested. And I was, so I went off to Pitt and I was going to be a philosopher of language. And but then I, in my second year there, I, uh, I started studying with, with Kurt Beyer and that made a huge difference. Well, this is actually I, my first podcast that is expressly devoted to ethics. I've, I've talked a bit about uh, ancient ethics with some other professors, but never just ethics proper. And I wonder if there's a slogan of sorts maybe that you use to explain what the philosophical study of ethics is on, on the first day of an intro class, just yeah. uh, for my non-philosophical audience and for me. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Bernard Williams says in Ethics and the Limits of Philosophy that Socrates says that the fundamental question is how to live. Um, well, you might think that's the broadest question, ethical question. Uh, but there's, you know, we can make some distinctions that are important distinctions. So these days, philosophers talk about normativity or the normative. And that's broader than ethics because there are questions of normative epistemology, for example, or aesthetics. Uh, those are normative questions. And could um, you define uh, normative yeah. for most well, people in a philosophical yeah. sense? Right. So normative has a broader use uh, among non-philosophers, notably among social scientists, let's say, where it means something like the norm or, it, or connected to actual social norms. That's exactly what philosophers don't mean by normative. Normative mm -hmm. uh, is, uh, so I think there are really three plausible theories in the field about what the fundamental normative concept is. One is the idea of normative reasons. Uh, so so-called reasons firsters like Scanlon or Parfit uh, that say that, uh, you know, there are questions about what to believe, there are questions about what to do, there are questions about what to feel. Um, and these are all questions about what there is reason to feel, what there is reason to do, what there is reason to believe. Now, some other people like um, John Broom, for example, think that, uh, no, that's not right, that the fundamental notion is the notion of ought. And actually that's what Sidgwick says. He says in the Methods of Ethics that the fundamental he says ethical. Uh, I think we really owe to Gibbard, uh, to his wise choices, apt feelings, the idea that <clears throat> what philosophers like Sidgwick and Moore and so on were calling, you know, the, the, the ethical force is really normative force. Um, uh, so, uh, so the second suggestion is that the fundamental concept is the concept of ought. And then you have people mm -hmm. who argue that the fundamental notion is the notion of fittingness. Um, and so the idea is Scanlon puts it this way. I think it's a good way to put it that normativity is always about a relation. It's a relation between a person, an attitude, a presenting situation and features in virtue of which the person ought to do something or in virtue of which a certain attitude would be fitting to its object and so on. And so just think about this as always from what we could call a deliberative perspective, trying to make up your mind about something. That's a phrase of Pamela Hieronymi's that I think is very helpful here. You're trying to figure out what to believe. You're trying to figure out 
how to feel about something or you're trying to figure out what to do. Okay, so you're looking at things from this deliberative perspective. And the question that arises from that perspective is a normative question. This is what Korsgaard calls the normative question. Uh, and an agent necessarily faces that question as an agent. Um, so, okay, so you've got this f fundamental idea of normativity. Then if we're talking about ethics, if, we, if it's an ethics class and it's not an epistemology class, then the question is, well, what's the fundamental ethical uh, notion? And I think it's really sort of the normative notion as applied to choice, as applied to attitudes like desire, as applied to attitudes like esteem, uh, uh, and feelings of various kinds. Blame is another one that I think about a lot, reactive attitudes, where the question is, what makes something blameworthy? Um, okay, so ethics broadly is roughly the question about what there is reason to, to do with your life and what to do here and now. Um, and then uh, within ethics, broadly conceived, we can distinguish what we call deontic moral questions. And so you said you've had somebody who does ancient ethics on before. Deontic moral questions do not arise in ancient ethics. So the deontic, this is a, a point we owe to Sidgwick, actually. Sidgwick makes a distinction between ancient ethical thought as the Greeks pursued it, and also um, medieval thought as it derived from, say, Aristotle, as in, for example, Aquinas. Uh, that's all on the ancient and its um, successors side. And then something happens in the 17th century, and this is what I've been thinking about in, in my histories. Uh, what It's what uh, Elizabeth Anscombe called modern moral philosophy. So moral philosophy, more properly so-called, is about deontic questions of right and wrong, uh, obligation, duty, um, and rights, and wronging, and those sorts of things. And so, uh, so that you know, I sort of introduced that distinction. I actually have a paper called Ethics and Morality uh, that's in the Rutledge Companion to Metaethics. Uh, sort of explaining what that distinction amounts to. And really a lot of the work that I've done um, is trying to figure out what I call the, the second personal character of deontic moral notions. Mm -hmm. So what's distinctive about these notions is that they're connected to accountability, to blameworthiness, uh, where blame is a Strassonian reactive attitude, and that has to be had from what I call a second person standpoint, or what Strassen mm -hmm. calls the participant point of view. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into the second person standpoint later. Uh, for now, though, that was a, I can tell that you've done this before. That was a really um, illuminating <laughs> answer. So, and it was great, especially great off the cuff. So, I, I'm, know very little about the contemporary study of ethics, let alone the history of ethics. But I'd like to start with the history of ethics, um, and yeah. particularly the history of modern ethics. And you seem to be like the person to talk to about this. So I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you've identified Hobbes as the beginning, roughly, of early modern ethics. 
and particularly his Leviathan. But before we get into that, what was the status quo before Hobbes? Was ethical thought in Europe very much uh, informed by just general Judeo-Christian teachings, or was it was it influenced by ancient philosophers, the philosophers of antiquity, or the Middle Ages, or is there too yeah. much too much different thought to even point to yeah. one yeah. Uh, particular influence? Yeah, I suspect what you're drawing uh, this idea that. Uh, Modern moral philosophy might derive from Hobbes is from my British moralists book. It's true mm. that British moral philosophy, uh, you might think of Hobbes as a kind of founding figure. I point to Grotius, however, uh, okay. as really the, the important. Uh, there's a, one of Grotius's translators. So Gro, Grotius is Hugo Grotius the great modern natural lawyer who formulates international law. There's no such and thing. Where, as, where is he from? He's from the Netherlands. Yeah. Okay. Hugo de Groot. Um, and, uh, you know, he's just a lawyer and he's trying to make a buck and uh, he's working for the Dutch trading companies. And so it'd be very convenient to them for there to be such a thing as international law. <laughs> Uh, yeah. which, by the way, would give them a justification for uh, confiscating uh, the fruits of piracy. Um, so he, uh, he formulates international law, but more than, much more importantly for my purposes is that he tries to ground natural law neither in God's commands nor, as Aquinas had, in some kind of Aristotelian teleology. Okay. Uh, so this is the big break. So uh, it's neither Aristotelian nor uh, religious. Yeah. So now I should say very quickly that some of the most important modern natural lawyers, notably Pufendorf and Locke, were theological voluntarists. They thought no, no God's command, uh, no morality. Um, but especially in Pufendorf, you can see that Pufendorf has these really insightful, deep insights about moral psychology and what it takes to be the kind of being who can be obligated, to be, as Locke puts it, capable of a law, to be subject to obligations. And it takes a certain psychology. So, you know, we might notice today, like, like psychopaths, it's hopeless trying to hold psychopaths accountable. They lack conscience. They lack the capacity. They lack what I call second personal competence. Um, and actually, I find in Grotius uh, the glimmerings of this idea. So Pufendorf sees that there are sort of psychological prerequisites for being a moral agent. So being a moral agent isn't just being a rational agent. It's not right, just right. being, yeah, yeah it, you have to be able to be capable of being morally obligated. And that requires, I argue, uh, and I'm, you know, the, these guys kind of believe it also. They often don't really know what they have. Uh, it takes me to come along and say, well, no, actually, if you see this, point this, and you point to that, then you can see that they've really got this theory there implicit. So, so there is theological voluntarism is alive and well, but it kind of undermines itself, in my view, uh, in, in the modern writers. But the crucial thing was the two things. 
One was the moving from questions of the good, questions about what is the best way to live, questions about virtue and vice conceived in sort of non-moral classical Aristotelian terms and moving towards um, what, what Sidri calls quasi-jural notions, juridical or deontic notions. That's, that's the important, first important thing. The second important thing is the rejection of Aristotelian teleology because you just don't need it to do science. And so you've got this idea that, well, whatever our philosophy is, it better be consistent with the going science and the going science is increasingly experimental and mechanistic and not requiring teleology. Um, no, so, oh, sorry. Yeah, that's, so that's, I think, in my view, that's where things start. And, and I claim that all modern moral philosophy, the story, so I'm writing this two volume thing on modern moral philosophy, first from Grotius to Kant, that comes out either in May or August, depending on which website you believe, uh, and uh, from Cambridge. And then the second volume, uh, you know, I'm about, I don't know, 40%, 50% of the way through, and I've got another year or two to work on. And that takes the story up to the end of the 20th century. Um, but it's really a story of trying to um, theorize on the one hand, but also interrogate, criticize if you're Nietzsche, demolish uh, this idea of deontic morality. And I think that all goes back to Grotius. So if Grotius's motivation, or at least one of them, as you put it, was um, the Dutch need for international law. Now, yeah. but if, if his ethical motivation wasn't coming from Aristotle or from religion, where did he conceive of moral obligation uh, as arising from in this yeah. new sort of juridical framework. Yeah. So the word he that we use to translate, I don't forget what the Dutch word is. Well, I, actually, it's uh, there's a, I think there's a Latin word that, but anyway, it's sociability. And sociability, I claim, I have a, I wrote an article called Grotius at the Creation of modern moral philosophy. You probably don't know this phrase at the creation. Uh, Dean Acheson, who was an important, you know, one of the first Cold War secretaries of state. Uh, You're right, by the way. Yeah, I, I thought I would. Acheson wrote this book about his years as secretary of state and, and about the end of the World War II and the beginning of the Cold War called at the creation. So at the creation of the Anyway, so I liked that phrase. Uh, so Grotius at the creation of modern moral philosophy. And what I say there is the way he understands sociability is as what I call second personal authority. And the idea is that any being who has the capacity to hold themselves accountable and to hold others accountable, and that's always a reciprocal second personal thing, has by virtue of that, an authority to make claims and demands of one another. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, I don't, I'm not, I wouldn't claim that Grotius was as clear about it as I try to be. Um, but there's just no question that he says that sociability is the ground of, um, 
of the, of, of the law. And this is in a context of a challenge that he puts in the mouth of Carneades, the ancient skeptic, he says, and the challenge is just a challenge that gets made uh, by Hobbes's fool and Hume's sensible knave and Kant's uh, worry that morality might just be chimerical. The challenge just is, well, look, suppose it's not in my interest to do the just thing or not to do what I'm obligated to do. Why should I do it? And he says, so, and, and so what Grotius says is, well, that's, it's grounded in your being a sociable being. And I take that to mean we all have a default moral relationship to one another. Yeah. And it's one of equality. We're all equally uh, beings who are capable of following the moral law. And then the thought is, well, the more, and you see this in Kant as well, that which makes us subject to the moral law has to also ground the content of the moral law. And the reason for that is that the moral law isn't just some standard that it would be good for us to try to meet. No, we're obligated to meet it, but we can be obligated to meet it only if we can know what it is. You can't hold me accountable for meeting a standard where I'm just, I'm, I don't know what it is. Um, and I have to also be able to do it just by virtue of knowing what it is. So I have to have, let's say, a conscience. I have to have this capacity. And then the thought just is, well, not only is that necessary, that's sufficient. That grounds the content. Okay, so so interesting. So morality now maybe for the first time arises from yeah. our disposition or, or our conscience, as you mentioned, as opposed right. to something maybe more external. No, so I was wrong in um, picking, uh, picking out Hobbes as who you would think uh, think of as the uh, marker of the beginning of early modern ethics. But is he the next person in line after Grotius? Yeah. Did Hobbes and Leviathan then build off of Grotius? Or am I still yeah. missing somewhere in the link? Yeah. Um, so Hobbes is a very interesting figure. Hobbes is certainly the, you know, the person who may be most responsible for killing Aristotelian teleology uh, as a way of trying to ground morality. Can you say uh, what Aristotelian teleology is? Yeah, Aristotelian teleology is the idea that every being has a telos, and that's an end. That uh, like it, a purpose. In, yeah, oh, a purpose. An end. Sure. Yeah, sure, sure. And then the purpose sets what it is for it to be both a good thing of its kind and for it to have its good, that is, for it to flourish, for it to have a good life, let's say. Um, and, you know, the, so the great classical natural lawyer uh, is uh, Thomas Aquinas. And Aquinas just takes on Aristotle's teleological metaphysics and then builds in uh, a theology on top of it. And uh, what he has that Aquinas didn't have, he does have a notion of morality, but it has to do with what is our, for our common good. Um, so that, that plays a role in uh, Thomas's idea of natural law. And there isn't an idea of natural law in Aristotle. Um, so 
Thomas is sort of on the way to the modern idea of natural law, but he hasn't quite gotten the deontic character because the natural law for him is ultimately just a claim about the good. It's a claim about what it is for you to realize your nature uh, and thereby have a good life. Um, so it, it, there's, there's a, um, you know, I, I'm told an, that this distinction happens before a guy named Francisco Suarez, but Suarez is the person who makes the distinction in a way that's most prominent for the modern natural lawyers to follow. And that's the distinction between what, what Suarez calls counsel on the one hand, that's roughly good reasons or what there is, you know, advice, you know, if you're giving somebody advice about how to live, you'd say, well, you do this. And on the other, obligating law. Um, so there's just a conceptual distinction between the idea that it'd be good to do this and that I'm obligated to do it. And, and then he also draws this conceptual connection that I draw and a lot of philosophers draw um, between obligation and accountability. Um, so what I'm obligated to do is what I would be to blame for not doing if I didn't do it without excuse. Um, so yeah, so, so I got to Hobbes. So Hobbes, uh, you know, he's, he's a mechanistic philosopher. He doesn't think there are such things as final causes. He thinks it's, it's literally uh, unintelligible notion. Uh, and so he's trying to construct, of course, he's most interested in a, in a political philosophy, but yeah. there's also moral philosophy there at the same time. And am yeah. I, it's been a long time since I looked at anything of Hobbes, but isn't there still a, a connection to Christian teachings in there? Like maybe it's, the the church that appoints the head of state or that's where the power of the leviathan comes from or i could be i, I could certainly be confusing down. people yeah okay. so so what's certainly right is that religion plays a very large role in uh hobbes's thought so there are four books of leviathan and the last two are concerning religion uh and he certainly thought that you know the greatest threat to the state came from um, fanatical religious belief. And, you know, so he's living at the time of the Civil War, and the Civil War is to a large extent over religion. Um, and uh, so he, he is, uh, you know, a peace at all costs person, and he thinks the only way he can get peace is by having um, sort of orthodox religious views set by the sovereign. So it's, it's the sovereign actually gets to a point, uh, has ultimate power over religious officials. If that weren't so, then you'd have religion as another point of, uh, of, of political power. And so, you know, he's an absolutist and thinks you can only have one seat of political power. So it's gotta be, it's gotta be what he calls the sovereign. Um, but he's very worried about uh, what they called enthusiasts, that is um, typically Protestant, you know, Anabaptists and uh, um, evangelical Christians who uh, would 
care more about their otherworldly survival uh, in heaven and not, and not going to hell than they do about peace on earth. And he has this really quite marvelous argument about, you know, uh, that you shouldn't worry so much about hell. Why? Well, it's true that hell is always there. Um, and it's true that there are eternally torments in hell, but no individual suffers internal, eternal torments in hell because, you know, everything is material. Hell's a material place. Bodies, there's, there are fires in hell, but bodies burn up. So, yeah, you're tortured for a while, but that's no worse than the state of nature. You can get tortured in the state of nature anyway. So if you think you're going to avoid, if you're going to take risks of earthly, um, sorry, uh, yeah, if you're going to risk earthly torture in order to avoid um, uh, torture in hell, forget about it. They're about the same. It's a wash. And I'm, I I might have missed this, but before we move on from Hobbes, as you mentioned, he's he was primarily a political philosopher, but did he have some sort of move that marks him specifically as an advancement in thought from Grotius on the ethical front? Well, I think what's true about Hobbes is that there's a certain strain of modern philosophical thought that's with us today as well. That's very sort of naturalistic, deflationist, um, not, you know, in a sense, you, you, you believe in morality, but you don't think it has any objective reality outside of your own, maybe, you know, maybe you're an expressivist. Hobbes is a kind yeah. of expressivist. Uh, so he doesn't believe in, in, in objective moral fact. Roughly. That's right. That's what you mean yeah. by deflationist. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Now, of course, he will think, he will say, he will write as if there are objective moral facts in the same way that current expressivists like Blackburn or Gibbard would. Right. But it's um, sort of like a fiction, maybe, or something. Yeah, that's right. So that's Hobbes' idea. Grotius doesn't have any thought along those lines. Um, I see. Yeah. Okay, that's in cool. fact, he's, he, he's not really. Um, so you might say, you know, put it this way, Grotius is a lawyer first and a philosopher second. Hobbes is a philosopher first and uh, a natural lawyer second. So he was actually he was also a practicing lawyer. Well, I don't mean that he was actually a oh. lawyer. I just mean okay. that his theories of law come from more okay. fundamental metaphysical and epistemological views. He's an, he's an arch empiricist. Okay. And and okay. and not just about what we can believe justifiably, but even also about meaning. So he holds a kind of verificationist theory of meaning. Okay. There's nothing like that in Grotius. Now, uh, moving along in the timeline, uh, was Hume the next sort of central figure that you would point to? Or oh, there's in, so, in this so so many figures. I mean, Hume's important. But um, many of Hume's doctrines are actually just taken from Francis Hutcheson before him, who okay. was a, a Scottish philosopher of the generation before. Hume is obviously brilliant 
and much more interesting philosophers than, say, Hutchison. Um, so what does Hume do that, and, and uh, there are ways he argues that uh, frame uh, problems in that, you know, continue to have influence today. So I'll just give one example. Um, Michael Smith has this book called The Moral Problem. And I think it's like 1994 or something like that. And he talks about the fundamental moral problem. It's really a meta-ethical problem is what it is. And it just comes straight out of him. So the problem is this. On the one hand, we speak and think as though there are uh, as though our moral um, attitudes are genuine beliefs. But belief itself, uh, sorry, and second, second thing is what we would call a certain kind of internalist, a judgment internalist move, which is, well, if you really believe that you ought to do something, then you got to be moved to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third thing is what, Smith calls the Humean theory of motivation, which is um, that uh, it's impossible for a belief to move you <laughs> to do something. So then it looks like we've got an inconsistent triad. So it can't be the case that moral judgments really are beliefs if they're internally motivating, intrinsically motivating, uh, because beliefs don't motivate. Um, well, that problem just comes right out of Hume. So that's one thing that Hume's very important for. He, you know, so he he he's much more recognizable to a contemporary philosopher as doing ethical philosophy than, say, something like, um, well, Hutchison, for example. Nobody reads Hutchison. I mean, some people, you know, scholars read Hutchison, but you know, you don't assign Hutchison to undergraduates. You assign Hume to undergraduates. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is the is ought. And that's Hume emphasizes that. Oh, yeah. So Hume, in a way, is a kind of meta-ethical writer. Um, uh, He focuses in on these meta-ethical questions. The other thing that Hume is great on is um, the incompatibility between benevolence and justice. That is, that there could be the situations where justice tells you to do A, but universal benevolence, what Hutchison called calm, extensive benevolence, an equal concern for every person, would lead you to do B. And this is now the sort of the familiar dialectic, this uh, struggle between deontology, where you think notions of justice have independent moral normative purchase on us, and uh, utilitarianism, act utilitarianism. Hume sees that... Well, justice is a matter of structures. It's a matter of institutions. And you can have institutions that are in everybody's interest, like he mentions promise and contract um, as two such institutions. Um, And so take the idea of a promise. If I give you a promise, I say, promise, uh, Robinson, I'll be here at 3. Well, at 3.02, I got here pretty close. You know, so uh, we're at three, um, and now let's say it's two fifty-five, and I'm thinking, I, I don't know. I mean, I'd really rather go for a long walk. Uh, okay, so now 
insofar as we think there's a, if you take our promises seriously, then we think, well, no, wait a minute, I promised him. I, I really, I need to do this. Um, now, a utilitarian act, utilitarian might say, well, look, uh, I have to figure in the usefulness of the practice of promising, but, yeah. you know, who's going to know about this? You know, who's going to know about this? Uh, you know, Robinson will be pissed off, but uh, other people will probably won't even know about it. He'll, who will he talk to? I don't know. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, the institution of promising will still keep chugging along. It's not going to be much affected by my not keeping my promise. Uh, you'll be disappointed. Okay, I have to count that in. Hey, but I'll be happy. I'll be out walking and doing something, you know. So anyway, so so the idea that I ought to keep my promise just because I promised, even and that the because that's required by a rule of the practice of promising, and that this rule is mutually advantageous. We all want there to be the institution of promising, um, right. and it's part of the the interest we all have in the institution that we get people who can rely on people doing what they promise to do, even when it doesn't make sense in terms of either their own interest or even the overall public interest. Hume sort of discovers that problem. So that's, that's very important. Yeah. Well, I'm very glad that you decided not to go for a very long walk before this. Where then, where, where does Kant enter the scene? Obviously, we could do 20 podcasts on Kant alone, and we still probably yeah. wouldn't uh, get through any, uh, get through, get through it really substan- substantively. But yeah. how did his views uh, diverge then from Hobbes, or maybe he's just way beyond Hobbes and, and yeah. Hume's? Sorry, I've got to. Um, yeah, Kant's a very important figure, but also a very complicated figure. Because, you know, on the face of it, he looks like he's a really modern figure, right? Because, um, you know, you start off the groundwork and he's talking about how the reason why we need a groundwork of, uh, of morality uh, is that the idea of duty purports to have a kind of necessity and a universality that requires an a priori foundation. Okay, now let's not worry about whether that's true or not. The thing I want to point to, it's the idea of duty. It's deontic character. Um, and then, you know, we all know about the categorical imperative. Uh, right. It's an imperative. You, you must do it. It's deontic. Um, and we also know, you know, there are different formulations, the categorical imperative. And one thing that's really important about Kant is that he, that he says he learns from Rousseau is that every person is equally valuable. Um, okay. But it's not just that it's equally valuable in some kind of, you know, they're equally precious or they're equally, um, uh, it's a good thing that we exist or whatever. No, it's equally equal as a ser- source of claims on us. It's that we haven't, we're obligated to treat everybody as an equal. Uh, so that's a catechal imperative though, just uh, to make sure that I have this right. It's, it's roughly that you're obligated to do what you would have others do in yeah. some sense. Well, that's close. There are different formulations. Right. So the formulation okay. you have in mind is what's called the universal law formulation. And the only, you know, there's a wrinkle 
is a little different from what you said. It's not what every it's not that you should do or what is it? You you shouldn't do what you wouldn't have everyone do. Uh, it's you should act on a maxim. Only if you could will that everybody act on that maxim. What's a maxim? It's a principle of action. So roughly, you can think of it this way: Whenever you're decide, deliberating about what to do, you sort of you tentatively decide to do something. Okay, but now in doing it, deciding to do it, you will have decided to do it for some reason. So there'll be the things that are your reasons for being tentatively decided to do it. That's the maxim. Okay. And then the question you have to ask is, well, could I will that everybody in this kind of situation act on that maxim, act on the maxim that I'm proposing to act on? That's the first formulation. But there's this other formulation that seems really, really different. And there's the question, how do you get, because he says they're all equivalent. How could they all be equivalent? And I think he has a way of trying to make them all equivalent. But the second one is you should always treat what he calls rational nature or persons as ends in themselves and never simply as means. Um, and that's also supposed to be something that we're somehow committed to from the first person perspective of an agent deliberating about what to do. Okay, so, so Kant, I, was, I started off by saying that, that Kant is, is clearly a modern, partly because of the emphasis on duty also because of the emphasis on the equal dignity of persons. That is not an ancient view. Right, uh, definitely you know, not. You know, and clearly- But, but, but Kant was, a, 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 I didn't know this until relatively recently. Uh, I spoke with Quaishan Spencer of UPenn about this. I didn't know that Kant was a notorious racist. So oh, yeah. in, some, in some sense, he was very yeah. much, did not believe that people were equal, oh, yeah. but it's because he had a different sense of what, what people were. Right. Wrong in fact, thing. he wasn't yeah. he wasn't just a racist. He had a theory of races. He yeah. was one, you know, he was maybe the most important modern theorist of race um, uh, in the pejorative sense. Uh, yeah. So I actually just came from a class. Uh, it's called Critical Perspectives on the Canon, which I'm teaching with a former Stanford undergraduate, actually, Moya Maps. It's, uh, and what we're doing is we're looking at the whole question of how you read someone like Kant and also Rawls. Um, we're spending much more time on Kant than on Rawls when uh, they have these, you know, in Rawls's case, it's not that he has really problematic views. It's that just that he there are these silences in Rawls about what Charles Mills calls non-ideal theory. Um, but so, yeah, so. So, so, right. So Kant does hold this idea of the equal dignity of persons, but there's no question that he himself wouldn't count everybody in um, it, that we think should be counted in. So now there's all these interesting questions about, well, what makes somebody a rational agent? Um, and there are questions you can, there are answers you can get from what Kant says about what he has to believe about that. Um, I don't think it's the right answer myself. I mean, I, my view, as I was suggesting before, is that it's what I call second personal competence. That is the capacity to hold yourself accountable and hold others accountable to you. And that requires the capacity to take up what I call a second person stance uh, in an impartial way. Um, and where you ask questions about what it would be reasonable to require of people in roughly the way Scanlon thinks about it, the way Rawls thinks about it.
Um, so anyway, so so Rawls is clear, I mean, Kant is clearly a modern. On the other hand, and this is I think an untold story about Kant that I go into in some length in the last chapter of my modern moral philosophy from Grotius to Kant. It turns out that for Kant, all of these deontic notions do not characterize what he calls pure practical reason at all. They're just notions that finite rational agents, roughly embodied rational agents, who have other sources of motivation than what there is good reason to do. So they have these nagging inclinations, you know, to uh, to get a drink of water or to go to sleep or whatever it is. We, we, we are, um, if you want to, if you want to good sense of what the idea of inclination is for Kant. There's a wonderful book that Tamar Shapiro brought out, I guess it's a year before last. Um, I'm having her on the podcast in um, oh, cool. a few yeah. weeks. Good. So she'll talk to you about inclination. Yeah. So, so Kant's view is it's only because we're subject to inclinations that we need an imperative, that we need the idea of a deontic ought. Uh, and um, so Perfectly rational beings uh, don't deliberate in terms of oughts. They deliberate in terms of what would be the best thing to do. Uh, they just look at the reasons for doing, you know, you can do this or you can do that. And uh, he still thinks that um, something like the categorical imperative is going to show up, but it's not going to show up as a deontic requirement. It's just going to show up as, well, you know, whatever the good reasons are, they're such that they have to be consistent with everybody's acting on these, uh, this, the same maxims. Uh, so there's a kind of condition of universal compossibility or something like that, but it's not deontic. Uh, so it is this weird thing that Kant on the one hand is a modern, on the other hand, the, uh, the distinctively modern deontic concepts of morality do no work whatsoever in his system. They're only there as a kind of crutch for those of us who are imperfectly rational, who don't automatically do what we see we have good reason to do, and we need to somehow get ourselves to uh, do what we have good reason to do. And so we sort of, we think that reason is commanding us to do this, okay? And then we've got the idea of a kind of internal conscience where it's making its command to me and I make the command to myself embodying reason to myself and you get the whole second personal framework, but it's just as a kind of um, an instrument that we imperfect rational beings need in order to do what it's rational for us to do. There are two more characters in the history of modern ethics that I'm curious about. One yeah. is a name that I've only heard recently, but I know very little about, but I have come to learn that he's quite a huge figure, and that's Jeremy Bentham. Was he known largely for his work in ethics? or And where did he... I know he was a, he was a rough, rough contemporary of Kant a little later, but... What, later. Yeah. Yeah, so, so he also is a lawyer first... Uh, He's not, it's not that he's a philosopher second. He's a moral philosopher second. So he's very okay. much a philosopher. He has a philosophy of language that's really interesting. He's a kind of positivist. Um, but he was an actual lawyer like Grotius? 
Absolutely. And, and you okay. know, he is mostly interested in, in reform, reform of the law, uh, reform of, of natural law or common law, actually, as it was practiced uh, in England. And so he's a reformist. Uh, the people around him were known as philosophical radicals. So he was, uh, I mean, you can see some of this in Mill as well. Mill makes a distinction at the beginning of utilitarianism between what he calls intuitive moralists on the one hand and inductive moralists on the other. The inductive ones are empirically minded. They're trying to settle moral questions with social scientific knowledge. Uh, <clears throat> so Bentham very much is, uh, holds that view. Uh, and actually, I have a reading of Bentham's argument for the principle of utility such that uh, it's kind of like what the way Rawls does things in political liberalism. Um, what we need is a basis of public moral and political criticism that doesn't require anybody to hold any particular moral premises that we we have to be able to do it with, with social scientific facts. And the reason for that is because otherwise we'd be prevailing on others. We'd be imposing our moral views on others. So we can't really do yeah. that. We have to sort of bracket those. Um, so yeah, so he's, he's very much uh, a positivist, uh, an empirically minded philosopher, and he's a reformer and he's very suspicious of any, you know, like, proscriptions on voting for the people who don't own property or prescription or women. Uh, he's also a great fan of animals, other animals. Uh, so yeah, he's, he's an important figure, uh, mostly in the history of utilitarianism. Uh, Mill cuts his teeth on Bentham. He literally works for Bentham early on in his life. His father was a disciple, one, another one of the philosophical radicals, James Mill. Um, but he's very important in the history of utilitarianism. Okay. Well, the last person that I was curious about in this vein, I was mainly curious because I hadn't expected to see him in a text on ethics because I know the name Adam Smith through, through economics. Yeah. So I think of Adam Smith as the first second personal philosopher, actually. Okay. He's very important for me. Um, so the thing that's really hugely important about Smith is his theory of moral sentiments, which I think is the best work on moral psychology in English ever written. Oh, wow. um, yeah, it's and just can, can, you've mentioned moral psychology a few times already. Yeah. But what roughly is moral yeah. psychology? Well, that's a good question. It, it's a term whose meaning has moved around a little bit. So when I was your age, let's say. Moral psychology meant it was an armchair thing. So Smith is doing stuff in the armchair. He's thinking about the moral emotions. And Strawson, likewise, would be a moral psychologist. Strawson is doing those studies, empirical studies. When he writes Freedom and Resentment, he's saying, look, there are these different attitudes and they have certain features and, and they have certain interesting presuppositions. And, you know, it's a very important paper. But there's literally no empirical evidence for anything that he says, that's what moral psychology used to mean, used to mean. That is psychology insofar as it's necessary to do moral philosophy, but that really doesn't depend, you know, it's empirical in some broad sense, 
but the thing is, it, it just involves knowledge. It, it just involves a kind of discernment that uh, someone like Smith can have. Uh, someone who's a reflective person, honest with themselves, good at spotting distinctions, and so on. Um, so that's what I do, for example. I do that kind of moral psychology. So when I make distinctions, let's say, between remorse and guilt, uh, I'm not doing it on the basis of any psychological studies that anybody have done, except I do have this sort of in the heart book um, when I'm trying to convince people that they make this distinction also. And I'm saying, look, remorse is a heartfelt attitude and guilt is not a heartfelt attitude. Guilt is the sense that you've done wrong. Um, and it's a, a second personal holding of yourself accountable for that and trying to make it up to somebody or take responsibility for it. Um, remorse is a kind of sorrow. It's a kind of sadness for the harm that you've caused someone, usually culpably, but actually the culpable part is not strictly necessary. Um, and here's one way. So I, you know, I, I just, when I formulated this idea, I could just see by reflection that there are these different attitudes and they play different roles in our moral psychology. And one mediates, one mediates, mutual accountability and the other mediates what I call heartfelt connection. Um, okay. But then uh, just to sort of satisfy myself that I was right about this, uh, I just did a little Google search. Um, and I, I did the search string heartfelt guilt and heartfelt remorse. And mm -hmm. it moves around a little bit because Google as a search engine is very inconsistent for reasons that we could go into at some point. But there's, you know, there are relatively few heartfelt guilt responses. And there are like 10 to 20 times as many heartfelt remorse. Uh, so it's a, heart, remorse is a kind of sickness in your heart. And guilt is not a sickness in your heart. It's a setting of the will not to do that again. I must take responsibility for it. Okay, so that's so that's what moral psychology would have meant. These days, this is much likelier to be experimental, uh, involving the psychology department or experimental philosophers. It requires empirical experiments, uh, and you know, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm friendly to that I I'm, that idea in theory, but I uh, and I think it's really important to know psychology if you want to do um, moral philosophy. But I don't myself try to do that kind of psychology, but I sure do try to do. You know, I've written a lot of stuff in moral psychology on the nature of contempt and love and gratitude and mm -hmm. so on. Anyway, so so what were Adams Smith's, uh, what did he, what did he have to say about moral sentiment that you found to be so important? Yeah. So, uh, first the, our contemporary notion of fittingness, which is a very technical metanormative or meta-ethical notion. That's exactly what Smith means by propriety. And I, I think he's the only philosopher I know of who's clear about this. So that's one thing. Uh, I don't think that had much of an effect. It may, have, it, may, it may never have had an effect on anybody, uh, but he was seeing something that people have only, I think, started to see since A.C. Ewing in the early 20th century and so-called fittingness firsters um, uh, you know, have, have thought they've seen 
well, you don't have to be a fittingness firstness. Anybody who thinks that there's this meta-ethical relation of fit, that's just the same relation as what Smith meant by propriety. The other thing that's hugely important for Smith is um, the role of what we would call empathy or perspective taking. So this idea of simulation, the idea that we, we attribute mental states to others, not through observation, but through a kind of imaginative simulation of them in their shoes, that's a Smith idea. Um, so that's, that's another thing that's important in Smith. Yeah. So, so what Smith Still means by... For sure. Yeah. So what Smith means by sympathy is completely different than what Hume means by sympathy. Hume has in mind a kind of emotional contagion where, you know, if I'm sad, let's say I, I come on the show, you know, kind of drooping and so on, and you feel, you feel down as well, then you're catching my emotion by kind of emotional contagion. It's easier to do when we're not online, let's say, we're in the same room. Mm -hmm. Or if I smile, then you smile. Okay, the crucial thing is that kind of attitude doesn't come with its object. If I smile, then you smile. You're not necessarily smiling at what I'm smiling at. You're probably smiling at me <laughs> if you're smiling at anything. I mean, obviously, you are smiling at me in a trivial sense. So contagion is not from the perspective of the person, as if from the perspective of the person who's feeling one you're catching. Whereas with Smith, I have to I imagine myself in your shoes and then I imagine feeling what you're feeling. Um, so it's an, the idea that we live our imaginative lives in as if in others' shoes looking at us. That's a very important idea. And frankly, it's, yeah. it's also it's fundamental for what I mean by the second person standpoint. So here, here we are. We're having a conversation, you and I, and you say something. And maybe especially because, let's say, the, the connection is not perfect. So maybe I'm dropping some of what you're saying and you're dropping some of what I'm saying. And I can't really see in your responses whether you're getting what I'm trying to say and so on. So what, I, what do I do? Well, I have to put myself in your shoes and try to imagine what your responses might be to what I was saying. So any kind right. of conversation requires perspective taking. It's just impossible to even know what the other person is saying without uh, putting yourself in their shoes. So it's a necessary condition for second personal competence. Um, and Smith also has this idea of the impartial spectator. It's not really a spectator's notion or a third person notion. It's an impartial second person notion. Um, so that's why I call Smith the, uh, the first second personal philosopher. The other reason is that he, the way he thinks about justice, and this is a very big difference from Hume. Um, so for Hume, whether something is unjust is whether it violates mutually advantageous rules. Um, and, uh, justice is a virtue for Hume. That just means that it's, a kind of motivation. So suppose you're, you're moved by your acceptance of the rule. Um, and then I have a, an approval of that motivation, then that's what it is for justice to be a virtue. And that's really what's going on for Hume. Uh, and then he, Hume says, look, suppose there are these situations where 
there were suppose there were, were he's, I think he says a race of men or animals or something like that that were, had much less threat advantage in relation to us. Uh, they can't they can't hurt us. Um, then we wouldn't have any mutually advantageous conventions with them, so we wouldn't have to observe these rules with respect to them. And he, so he says, well, there would be no way of treating them unjustly. Now, uh, Smith completely disagrees. Smith thinks that whether something is unjust is whether it's resentable. And whether it's resentable is whether resentment is a proper response to it, a fitting mm -hmm. response to it. And you gauge that by this kind of impartial putting yourself in another person's shoes. Yeah. Uh, so that's a hugely important point with Smith. Yeah. It's and just one funny. last thing. Oh, sorry. Sure, sure. Yeah, just one last thing I'll say about Smith. You know, there's this so-called Adam Smith problem. How could the same person have written The Wealth of Nations and also the theory of moral sentiment? Because isn't The Wealth of Nations, that's about unrestrained capitalism and all that matters is self-interested economic exchange. It turns out there's a very deep connection between them. And that is that Smith thinks that contracts and exchange are only possible if we presuppose some fundamental mutual respect between the parties. So the simple way of making the point is um, you and I can exchange one thing for another freely only if we assume that both of us could reject the deal if we didn't want to make it. And that if we were to reject it, we couldn't force the other person to accept it. So the, the very idea of free exchange uh, presupposes a kind of mutual respect that's in the background yeah. of the theory of moral sentiment. So, so the theory of moral yeah. sentiment roughly gives you the psychology that is necessary for you actually even to be capable of making deals, uh, where deals are conceived of as you know serious deals, not just I'm treating you, I have no commitment to this. But no, if it's re really, if we're, we're committed to the principle of free exchange, then it takes a certain psychology for that. And that's what the theory of moral sentiments gives you. It's funny to me how many ideas we use in our everyday thought or conversations, like walking in another person's shoes or uh, yeah. pro projection and the subconscious uh, from yeah. Freud without realizing that they stem from this very long uh, philosophical yeah. or psychological lineage. So it's always neat to, to hear yeah. something like this and realize, oh, that's where my words came from. Right. But now, before we move on slightly, I want to ask about something you hinted at. I would like to hear about your, uh, I would like to hear your diatribe on Google, if it's a diatribe, but why, <laughs> why the search engine is inconsistent. Oh, well, do, do you know Shoshana Zuboff's uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism? Most certainly not. Oh, you should read it. Um, okay. Well, so I, so you're out in a part of the world, obviously, where these tech companies are are minting money, not as yeah, well as they were years ago. But uh, anyway, so Google used not to make any money at all. They were just the best search engine that anybody had ever figured out. And mm -hmm. I forget who Larry Page was working with. Larry Page went to the University of Michigan. Um, where I used to teach, there was an economist. Sergey Brin. Oh, oh, you're talking yeah. about. 
Sorry. Yeah, it, but then there's also the, uh, there's an economist named Hal Varian who now works for Google. He was an economist at Michigan. Then he went to Berkeley as a um, because he was I can't remember whether he first went to the information school or then went to uh, or first went to the library to head up the libraries. But he was he was very good on the ec economics of information. Anyway, he he was the one who taught Google how to make money uh, through ads. Uh, and of course, nowadays, you know, you do a Google search and you get the, the first several things are these ads, the ads, the sponsored hits, uh, and then they're the unsponsored ones. Um, but in the old days, you know, you make, you do a search and you'd get everything that was on the web. Uh, and there was no, there were no ads and there were, there was no attempt to, to, you know, the, the, the algorithm wasn't trying to point you towards any particular hits. It, 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 they did it in terms of, of interest. It was really, it was a research yeah, yeah. dream. Google Books was an especial, especially a uh, researcher's dream. So, you know, I'm old enough to remember when, the, when Google came to the University of Michigan libraries and, and scanned all the books in the library. And they did the same thing at Harvard and a couple of other places. And they created this amazing database so that everything, you know, they had, they had scans of everything. Now, you know, we were hopeful that that would mean that you'd be able to see everything. Now, they had certain copyright things they had to observe, of course. Uh, and even in the good old days, the most you'd get with some books was sort of snippets. Um, but you'd get every hit. So if I looked at, let's just say, uh, you know, a particular edition of Bentham's Introduction to the Principles yeah, yeah. of Legislation, and I'm wondering... Gee, what's this theory of obligation? So I just type in obligation, and I'd get every hit uh, in the book. So, uh, and sometimes it'd be the whole page, and sometimes it wouldn't be the whole page, but it would tell you what the page was. And so, if I could get my hands on the book, then I could actually go and I could find every one. About eight years ago, for reasons I have I have never been able to fathom, they stopped giving you any more than five hits on a search string. And it's like, so it went from being completely valuable to being worthless almost. Yeah. Um, and uh, <clears throat> now they've <clears throat> happily, they've gone back to it with the old oh, words, okay. but now the problem is these Kindle texts, these uh, digital texts. So now what you'll get, if you try to search a, something in Google books often, if it's something that's been published recently, is you'll just get like the first chapter. You'll, you'll get what will be the sample that you'd get on Amazon. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's again, useless. Okay, well, it's not so bad because, you know, if you're good to have a good academic library, many of these books you can get access to because they're, they're digital books in the library catalog or, you know, mm -hmm. if you pirate PDFs, if they, you know, they haven't closed down a certain pirate PDF site, then you can probably get the pdf off off the web but yeah no it's um google uh has been an you know initially i mean nobody should have been surprised but uh they they just they discovered how to make money and once they did then uh it was devil take the hindmost got it well okay switching back then 
to ethics. Yeah. Now, as I understand it, what we've really been talking about is, since Grotius, maybe the positive development of ethical philosophy. But you earlier mentioned Nietzsche, and I I think maybe before him, but around that time, uh, there's a, a transition where and and you've written I'm I'm referring specifically to Marx, Kierkegaard, and Nietzsche as philosophers who became very critical of morality. And I'm wondering what you meant by that. But before, but there, there's another part to this question that I'm also quite curious about, which is in your manuscript on the heart, which I also have looked at. You identify as an analytic philosopher, and I know that analytic philosophy is generally thought of as beginning maybe around Frege, who really, I think, postdates all three of the philosophers that I just mentioned. But so what interest do these philosophers generally thought of as belonging more to the continental tradition have for you? So that that was a few questions in one. But yeah. Well, yeah. So there's a really interesting story here about the so-called continental analytic split and where it comes. uh, And first, just on that question, you know, both continental philosophers and analytic philosophers claim Kant as their yeah. ancestor, but things start to divide after that. Um, so with Hegel, Fichte, Schelling, you get the beginning of what you might call a phenomenological philosophy, at least one branch of philosophy as being phenomenological. What do I mean by that? From a point of view, I mean. So even, so in yeah. Kant, that idea is there because you've got the idea as Korsgaard brings out, for example, brilliantly in, in her work, the idea of a first person deliberative standpoint. And the idea is in the, say the critique of practical reason, what are the assumptions, the presuppositions of such a perspective? Well, uh, with Hegel uh, and uh, Fichte and Schelling, on the one hand, they're followers of Kant. On the other hand, they're critics of Kant. So uh, take Hegel. Uh, Hegel has this sort of three-stage dialectic, abstract right, morality, and then what he calls ethical life. And the problem with morality conceived as a Kant, as a Kantian would conceive it, is that it's 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 too abstract. It can't be realized. Now, part of this is a problem that's sometimes called the, uh, the empty formalism proper problem. And Hegel certainly does think that. He thinks that Kant's theory pretty much will give you any result you want. Uh, it's too formalistic. Um, but the deeper point, I think, is, and this actually is a sense in which Kant can agree with this, because Kant in the Rechtslehre, in the philosophy of right, holds that these abstract moral ideas, they can give you some kind of sort of provisional grounding for natural rights, but these rights have to be realized in an actual social structure. They require recognition relations. uh, And that's where you get Fichte and Hegel, the importance of uh, reciprocal recognition. Uh, So of, of a social, an embodied, so they have to be embodied in a society, in an actual social order. Uh, and this is the, you know, this is the Hegel that, say, the American pragmatists look back to, and that Wittgenstein looks back to, a kind of pra- the action 
is always imminent. It starts with our actual practices. And then we see what's implicit in those actual practices. And so Hegel, so that the idea of starting not as if from nowhere in the way science does, for example. So this is a, you know, continental philosophy sees philosophy as a very different enterprise than science. Analytic philosophers at least always think that their philosophizing has to be consistent with uh, the best empirical theories and natural science. But there's a very strong strain of naturalistic, uh, empirical naturalistic um, philosophizing among analytic philosophers where you're trying to reduce the philosophical issues to just empirical issues. Okay, so that's so that division starts after after Kant. Um, mm-hmm. Anecdotally, and, though, I, I think you you mentioned yeah. this this uh, divide being at least going in the Hegel direction being sort of somewhat fem- phenomenological. I yeah. I recently talked to your colleague Lori uh, L. A. Paul. And she's obviously an analytic philosopher now, right now, but she's she's working on the phenomenology of the self. But yeah. as I understood it, from a cognitive scientific perspective, yeah. so right. it's an analytic way of getting back to that. So that's right. interesting. So, yeah. So yeah. So um, yeah. There's this distinction that the Germans make in the 19th century between Geisteswissenschaften. Geisteswissenschaften, and I forget what the other one is, but the Geisteswissenschaften thinks that it's a sort of anti-cognitive science. It's that you really can't do these things except from within the human perspective. You're not trying to do experiments about the self or whatever it is. No, this is all about lived experience. Right, very Husserlian. Yeah, so that, right, exactly right. So so that's the continental side of it. now, I do think that a lot of this can be made analytic friendly. Um, and that's really what I've done in my work. So, you know, my work on the second person standpoint, I, I take the main insight that got me going to be one that Fichte has uh, in the Foundations of Natural Right, that it takes what he calls an alf orderung, a summons from another person to get a conception of yourself as a free agent in the sense of freedom that's necessary for moral and political philosophy. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that, that these things are necessarily at odds. I, I, I do think that there's a certain kind of anti-scientism, not anti-science, but an anti-scientism, an anti-reductionist strain that I think is true, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. valid, correct. Uh, and so that, that's, but you can do that and be an analytical philosopher. There are all kinds of analytical philosophers like Nagel and Parfit and so on and Scanlon who are certainly not, you know, they sometimes call themselves non-naturalists, sometimes call themselves, uh, you know, anti-reductionists. There's nothing non-analytic about that. Mm-hmm. So then returning to Marx, Kierkegaard and Nietzsche. Yeah. Now, what what did you have in mind when you wrote that they were so critical of morality? And how is this a divergent yeah. from, from the trend yeah. we were discussing earlier? Yeah. So in this way, they're not just after Kant. They're also after Hegel. Um, okay. So they take on board this Hegel idea 
that the Kantian idea of morality is excessively abstract uh, and it requires to be realized in some uh, actual social order. Uh, and that's really where the action is. But they also disagree with Hegel <laughs> in different ways. So Marx. Okay. Maybe we should start. Yeah, let's start with Marx. Yeah, Marx most notoriously because. You know, Marx is a student of Hegel's, but he thinks that Hegel, where Hegel thinks you can, you that the engine of development is the very nature of of spirit or uh, mind. Um, you know, Marx thinks that no, that the, you're fastening on things that are ideological at best, things that are just part of what Marxists call the superstructure. Really what does the work uh, is pl in political economic change, which has to do with relations to the means of production. And so the, you know, the, 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 the dialectic we should be focusing on is a materialistic dialectic. Starts with feudal relations, let's say, then that then having the seeds of its own destruction leading to capitalist relations uh, in which you've got you know, people who own the means of production, people who don't own the means of production and have to sell their labor, the only thing they do own, uh, to those who own the means of production. And that's setting up a whole sort of structure that makes exploitation possible. And then all the various forms of alienation that Marx writes about in the economic and philosophic manuscripts. Uh, and then that has the seeds of its own destruction. And then ultimately what can come out of that is a society, a communist society, Not you know, obviously not the, Russia or the Soviet Union or anything yeah. like that, but, mm -hmm. but a genuinely communist society, uh, maybe it's anarchist, maybe it lacks a state, um, but it's one where people are realizing themselves as free beings in genuine solidarity and connection with other free beings. Um, okay, so that's, that's Marx. And, and so Marx thinks that the ideas, the deontic ideas of rights, so you might think, well, look, the problem with exploitation is it's profoundly unjust. It violates our right to be treated as equals. And Marx is very profound. He's profoundly skeptical of the notion of rights. He thinks that um, it's a uh, an ideological construct that, uh, well, actually, go back to the point I was making about St Smith and the need for the idea of rights and equal respect was, and so I was going to say, it's interesting that this reminds me of Smith, the, the capitalist. Yeah, that's right. Right. So, so Marx thinks um, this is just the ideology of capitalism. Um, and uh, yeah, so one of the things we read in this course, in addition to Marx's on the Jewish question, where he's giving his, his arguments about how any notion of rights is a profoundly alienating notion because it treats us as independent monads and not profoundly connected to one another. Um, but there's also another thing that we read uh, is a, a work by Evgeny Pashukhanis, who was a Soviet uh, jurisprude, a, a philosopher of law. He was their main legal theorist. And he has just a brilliant uh, laying out of Marx's view that what it takes to be a subject of law. So there's a whole set of, I means what's brilliant about it is because he sees all the connections that I emphasize in my work between 
being a subject of law, having rights, uh, having a certain kind of accountability uh, and so forth and so on. And he's saying, look, this, these are just, it's, it's an ideology that's required by capitalism, pure and simple. And if we could get over capitalism, then we could relate to other with, without having to have rights. We could, mm -hmm. uh, huh. you know, we could, we could be like a basketball team on the same page, you know, trying to do something together or a symphony orchestra. And, you know, the horn player doesn't say, look, I have the right to play at, at this, at this tempo or at this uh, decibel pitch. No, you know, we're, we're in this thing together. There is no IN team. Anecdotally, I'm wondering, I'm seeing for the first time, and maybe I'm totally off base here, uh, but why Marxist thought is so often connected to psychoanalytic thought. And I'm wondering if one, the connection that I'm seeing here is that in order for society to get over this um, capitalist spirit that you've pointed at, it really requires delving into the subconscious of the of the society because it's so deeply ingrained in the fabric yeah. of everything we do. Yeah. Yeah. I think Marx himself was no particular, f I mean, look, there, Freud in some ways was a materialist. I mean, he was a materialist. Uh, his philosophy is kind of mechanistic in a way that I think Marx would have appreciated. Marx wrote his uh, PhD dissertation on Lucretius. Uh, so he was himself a materialist. On the other hand, I don't know that he had much use for psychoanalytic method um, and or I don't think the subconscious plays any particular role uh, in, in in Marx. So what do you say? But I, I mean, sort of after the fact, uh, yeah. like current or later writings about Marx, they, they see. seem to be tied yeah. together. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Then where where does Kierkegaard enter enter things? Yeah. Was well, he a, are, a Marxist? No, no. So there's okay. no particular relationship. I mean, they're they're completely different. Kierkegaard could, okay. could care less about the proletariat. I love his name. I love the name Soren. Yeah. Who is it who's saying? Oh, yeah. Right. So last night I taught the first meeting of this class. And, you know, you go around the classroom and people, everybody gives a fun fact about themselves. And this one woman said that her parents almost got a divorce because one of them, who's Danish, wanted to name her Soren and the other yeah. one and his wife didn't. Um, in fact, she said that I got a message from her today saying that uh, she heard from her uh, father that she, he was happy that she was taking the course, but also happy that... Uh, his wife had put her foot down and not allowed them to call her Soren. Um, yeah. So, so Kierkegaard is not a Marxist by any stretch of the imagination. He doesn't care at all about these okay. kinds of issues. Uh, Was he also really, reacting to Hegel? Yeah, he's reacting to Hegel more to Fichte actually than to Hegel. Um, but the, um, the central idea is that um, he also has, this kind of um, three-part dialectic. Uh, so just to recall, for Hegel, it was abstract right, morality, and then ethical life. For Kierkegaard, it's what 
he calls the aesthetic. He has this book, Either Or. So either is the aesthetic point of view that's living your life uh, as if it were an arch- work of art and caring more about not being bored and just attending to interesting things, very sort of superficial way of living your life. Then the second stage is what he calls the ethical. He really means the moral. Um, but then there's this third stage, and this is kind of, you know, this is sort of similar to what you have both in Hegel and in uh, Marx. It's a kind of, and also Nietzsche, it's a kind of supra moral way of thinking. It's, an eth- it's a way of thinking ethically, uh, but it involves what he calls a suspension of the moral. He calls it suspension of the ethical. He means of the moral, though, in terms of that distinction I was making. So suspension of the idea of deontic morality in favor of something that comes through a kind of loving commitment to God, for example, a leap of faith, but maybe not necessarily to God, maybe to something, but it's something heartfelt. It involves the heart. Uh, and, And then Nietzsche also has a three-part structure. First, there's what he calls good versus bad. That's a kind of, let's say, the ancient Greeks or the ancient Homeric heroes who uh, they didn't have any notion of moral right and wrong. They just had a notion of what was noble and what was base, what was above them and what was below them. Uh, Then that gets thrown over in favor of... um, uh, a conception of deontic morality. Nietzsche thinks it, that happens through a kind of what he calls slave revolt, a revolt of the weak against the strong. And a kind of, now Nietzsche certainly is interested in, in <clears throat> psychoanalytic ideas, um, in a kind of repression of anger. Uh, so the weak are, are dissed by the strong. They get angry about that, but they can't acknowledge their own anger because they have no way of releasing it because they're so uh-huh. weak. So they turn yeah. it on themselves and they repress it. And then there's what Nietzsche calls the dark workshop of the of the subconscious. In that dark workshop, they fashion new ideas. And the new ideas are good versus evil. So roughly moral good versus moral evil. And moral evil is the violation of deontic moral norms. Um, and that's not just, it's not just that they think things that used to be good or bad, and now they're things that are bad or good. It's, it's a wholly different kind of value, deontic moral value. Uh, so they, they fashion that idea. Uh, but then once we've got that idea, somebody uh, who's sufficiently strong and honest with themselves and authentic they can get beyond that and they can live a kind of supra moral life as what Nietzsche calls a sovereign individual. And this is the Ubermensch. This, so no Ubermensch, Ubermensch without morality, but the Ubermensch transcends uh, morality and thereby makes himself a higher person. So you, well, we all have this kind of critical uh, tack uh, on, on, on morality. Now, I spoke with uh, Eric Fitzgable, who's a professor of philosophy at UC Riverside, and he performed some experiments to find out whether uh, moral philosophers... We're terribly... We're moral people. Yeah. No, I know (laughs) the experiments. 
And okay. I would I would have predicted it in advance. I had a colleague uh, when I was teaching. Well, can you Michigan. say what it is? Because uh, my, some people might not yes, have. So don't know. Right. So yeah. the point is that um, moral philosophers are likelier. I don't, does he do it in terms of library books? Uh, uh, he, I think he's done a, a bunch. He's done vegetarianism. I think he might yeah. have done library books. Right. right. Um, but he's but less likely to be moral people. Uh, and and the, the sort of analysis is something like this. Well, moral philosophy, that's learning how to rationalize morally. So it's like, you know, I gave it the office. I thought about this problem. So that's my bit, you know. And so I'm going to give myself a pass on having to... <laughs> you know, to actually live, to, 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 to walk the talk. Um, mm -hmm. I can, I can do the talk, but I'm not going to walk it. Uh, yeah. So that, I, I do think that's a, I mean, look, I have no reason to reject his results. On the other hand, let me tell you, I know some very moral, um, um, uh, moral philosophers. And there's this sort of odd thing that uh, I also think is true. The consequentialists tend to have more integrity than the Kantians. Uh, it's, again, it seems to be a very similar phenomenon that uh, the Kantians really talk a lot about conscience and duty and so forth and so on, but figure out ways to uh, make, make exceptions of themselves. Whereas oddly enough, uh, the consequentialists that I know very rarely break promises or, you know, they're completely reliable people. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon. That, that said, I do think that, uh, there's no necessary connection between them. And I do think that there are a lot of really good, solid people who are moral philosophers. How's it been for you though? Has studying moral philosophy made you a more moral person? I wouldn't say so. Uh, I, I, here's what I would say. It's kept me honest in a way. Uh, but I, I wouldn't have been kept honest just by studying. Really what keeps me honest is being accountable to others. And by that, I mean mostly people in my life. Uh, it could be my students. Uh, it's often enough people in my own family uh, and other just people I know. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, you know, people who bring you down to earth and think, well, you know, you think you're so smart, you know, what is, what, what does that mean? What does that really get you? You know? Mm -hmm. uh, so no, it, it's so, so what the moral philosophy gives you is it gives you moral reasoning and consistency, but it may take a push from other people to actually get you to do the reasoning. Uh, you, you know better how to do it, but you may not necessarily do it unless you're actually in relations of mutual accountability. Now, happily, that's what my own theory predicts, right? Because oh, I'm, I'm, my view, whole view is that morality is about mutual accountability. And so I have, you know, maybe, maybe uh, I have an occupational interest in uh, making myself accountable and living more accountably precisely because if I do, that's better advertisement for the theory or something like that. And all I really care about is people believing the theory. Well, thanks so much for doing this with me, Steve. I, I mean, I really learned a ton. I learned so much, especially because I didn't really, I didn't know any of this before we started talking. Yeah. I'm sure my yeah. audience is going to get a ton out of this as well.
Great. Well, thanks a lot to you, Robinson. And uh, yeah, let me know if you want to talk again.